My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I am the Father of one. Holy Father, we are so thankful that salvation is your initiative, that when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, in your mercy through general revelation and then through the preaching of the gospel, just as you promised, you sent the Spirit to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We're so thankful this morning that when we call upon your name in faith to receive forgiveness and change, that our eternal destiny is instantly changed. Spirit of God, thank you for coming to live in us. You've described yourself and your word as the deposit, as the earnest, the down payment, that what you've begun you will complete. We're so grateful to you. And Lord Jesus, thank you that no one can snatch you out of, no one can snatch us out of your hand, and no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand that you hold on to us, that the work you've begun, you will complete. And when we think of this incredible grace, this grace that teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, when we consider even in our own failure as believers that you continue to love us with a relentless love, how that motivates us to want to please you all the more. We thank you that between justification and glorification, you are shaping us into the image of Christ. And you've given us a role to play, and we ask this morning that as we open your word that we not be distracted by emails, text messages, phones, anything, but that we would worship you fully and wholly. Spirit of God, come and help me and fill me and anoint me and use me, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Take God's Word. Would you turn to the prophet Jonah, chapter 1? Be careful in finding it. If two or three pages stick together, you could easily miss it. If you're new to the Bible, find the Psalms. That's about dead center. And then scan to the right, and you'll soon hit this little book. He is in that section called Minor Prophets. After the major prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Mike, and Nahum. And uh, Jonah, he is a prophet that has a message for us today. This is the third of what I project to be ten messages from this prophet. He's called a minor prophet since the fourth century. And by minor prophet, please understand, it doesn't mean that he's unimportant or less inspired. It was a term used to designate the length of some of these prophets. So there are four major prophets giving us five books. Then there are twelve minor prophets prophets, a designation, some attributed to Augustine in the 4th century, but we certainly have it since that period of time. In fact, at one point, the 12 were on a single scroll, and the length of that one scroll with 12 prophets was actually shorter than even the prophet Isaiah. So, it's because of their length. Now, as we approach this prophet, we have seen that there are several approaches people have taken to try to understand and apply this book. Some just see it as fiction. More and more today, they just see the whole Bible as fictional. And this is just a cute little bedtime story like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Certainly not. Others say, well, it's a parable. It's an illustration. It's a story with a spiritual message like 
the parable of the prodigal son. But grammatically, we studied in the introductory sermon that this has none of the features of a parable. Still others, looking for deeper meaning, yet wanting to deny the miraculous nature of Scripture, say it's an allegory. But it doesn't have any of the characteristics of an allegory. People who adopt these false interpretive views to approach Jonah do so because they have an anti-supernatural bias when coming to the Scripture. That's why God put the key in the front door. If you can't believe Genesis 1-1, you can't believe the rest. But if you can believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then you can believe everything that follows. Now, with that said, there's only one way, rightly, and it was the view that was almost exclusively held for 1,900 years to approach this book by Jews and Christians alike. It's called the historical view. And I gave you three reasons, which you may want to go back and study if you're new here today. But the catapult reason is that Jesus saw this as history, not as allegory, not as a parable, not as some moral lesson, but as a real person named Jonah, swallowed by a real fish, spit out on real land to preach to a real people. Now, with that said, I want to begin by reading our text. It sounds like you have found it. Jonah chapter 1. I'm reading from the New American Standard. We're going to pick up in verse 4 this morning. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and falling sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has come. Uh, this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made this sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not. For the sea was becoming, becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. And the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, last week we noted here in the first chapter we find Jonah in three different relationships. We just began to touch on it last week, 
Jonah in relationship to the Lord. If you're taking notes, uh, there's a note-taking outline in the bulletin. If you're new, there's a place online. We want to first consider Jonah in relationship to the Lord. Now, if you remember, the account opens with Jonah's commission. We read, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Three commands in verse 2. You should have them underlined or circled by now. Arise, go, and cry. They really summarize Jonah's, God's immediate will for Jonah. Uh, this was God's plan for him. These are not three suggestions. These are imperatives. These are commands. But if your heart is out of sync, like Jonah's was at this point, you don't want them to be commands. You may want them to be only suggestions. Go to Nineveh, the great city. And it's called the great city. Nineveh, if you remember, was the capital of Assyria. And it was a huge city, as we will see when we come to the third chapter. It was a gigantic city in this time in human history. And it was even bigger than its successor that's called Babylon the Great. But Jonah, nonetheless, is the very first missionary, the first Jewish man, to go to a Gentile people. And of course, archaeology, not to mention the biblical account, reveals much about these particular people. Now, the journey from where he lives in Galilee all the way to Nineveh is about 500 miles. As we noted, these Old Testament prophets were by no stretch wimps. They were men's men. And they were in condition. And by the way, you should do everything you can to stay in condition. I don't want to be disqualified from preaching because I threw my health away, and some people are digging a grave with their own spoon. Listen. If you have the genetics where you have situations you can't control, we get that. God's grace is sufficient. But we need to be good stewards. So it was not the distance that bothered the man, of course. It was the place. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. The message that he was to preach is recorded in chapter 3 and in verse 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's the message. Go to Nineveh, and this is what I want you to cry out. Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Eight words in the English Bible, five words in the Hebrew text. Now notice here in verse 1, at the end of verse 2, as to why he is to go there and preach it. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Paraphrase, God is saying, I've had it up to here. The aroma of their sin has come into heaven like a stink. So his mission was to go cry against it, to announce judgment, not so much to inform them of specific sins, for they were covered over in them, they knew their sin, but the judgment that that sin was going to bring. And if you were here last time, we looked at even some of the archaeological records that detail the heinousness and the wickedness of these depraved people. They wrote about it. They put it on their stones because they were proud of it. It was the hallmark of what they thought of themselves. And beyond the archaeological record, a hundred years later, there's another prophet who comes along, and his name is Nahum. And of course, by that time, that generation had repented of their parents' repentance, 
but still you get a descriptive feel of what this people were like. Immoral, brutal, unmerciful, a perverted people. They were wicked and inhumane, and this is where God wants to send His man. And by the way, God never gave him a promise that he would be successful. In fact, he might have only expected to find his head on a pole by the end of the week. Yet the wonder of it all is that in spite of all their wickedness, God still cared about these people. Yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown was a message of grace. It was a message of warning because it was not a hard, fast prophecy. It was conditioned on their response. And by the way, people don't need grace unless they see sin for what it is. And if you do not see premarital sex as evil, if you do not see extramarital sex, adultery as evil, if you don't see homosexuality and transgenderism and abortionism and greed and drunkenness and all these things as evil, then you don't really have a need for grace. But when we see sin as God sees it, then we see our need to flee to the cross. So God was extending grace because He cared for these people. And we should care for people as well. So here's Jonah's commission. There's his message. Now notice his response in verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Twice over, repeated, from the presence of the Lord, because that's the real issue. It's God. And he wants to get as far away from Nineveh as he can. He knows that God is omnipresent, that God goes in front of us, behind us, even before there's a word on our tongue. He knows what we're about to say. You cannot flee from the literal presence of the Lord, but his reasoning is, if I get far enough away, God can't really use me and influence me to win these wicked people. Now, Tarshish was a city that was thought by Phoenician sailors to be at the very ends of the earth. Here's a map that we looked at last week. Remember, he is from the Galilee region, about three miles from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. Gaspas there. Uh, Joppa, that's Tel Aviv today. It's out on the coast of Israel. And so it's about a 500-mile trip. So he wants to go in the opposite direction. Now, in the last 7,500 years, liberal theologians sadly influencing some evangelicals. Why people ever read William Barclay is beyond me. I only read him as a good illustration of what a liberal believes. He denies most of the major miracles in the Bible, but evangelicals quote him all the time. And they quote all these commentaries who don't know which end is up. Why would you read a commentary by a lost man to get his insight from the Scripture? The fact is, is Herodotus, who lived 425 years before Christ, definitively identified Tarsus as being in Spain. The point is, it's 2,500 miles from Joppa. It's about 3,000 miles from Nineveh. Now, some have said the reason he fled was because he was a coward. I went through that last time. This man has none of the marks of a coward. And remember, he's a prophet of God. None of God's prophets are scary cats. And remember, you didn't choose to be a prophet. God appointed you to be a prophet. In addition, some say, well, he was a bigoted Hebrew. He didn't want to go to pagan Gentiles. They argue that he is a reflection of what Israel was at that point. 
that since they are God's chosen people, that God cares about them, then why should we care about those lost Gentiles? And again, we went through that and why that is not true. Really, the reason he fled is a theological reason, and that's not some eisegesis decision. It comes from the text itself in chapter 4 and verse 2. The reason he fled is because he was a patriot. He prayed, that is Jonah, he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarsus, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. He didn't want to preach this message of grace because he knew if they repented, then God would relent. God would turn away from his wrath. Now remember, in the introductory message, we said that whenever you study an Old Testament book, it's very important to ask at what time frame in Israel's history is the book being written. When you're able to identify the time frame, it just makes the book come alive. Remember, the kingdom had split the 12 tribes into 10 northern, called Israel at this point, and two southern after the larger of the two, Judah. So he's a prophet to the northern kingdom, and they're living in sin and in idolatry. And during this same time, there are three contemporaries that preach with him. Their names are Amos, Hosea, and Isaiah. In Jonah's colleagues, their message was quite simple. Among other things, God is sick and tired of your idolatry. God hates your unfaithfulness to him. And if you do not repent, then I am going to bring a people down from the north, i.e. the Assyrians, again, whose capital is Nineveh, and they are going to carry you away as my disciplinary agent. So you put yourself in Jonah's shoes. Now, as much as I love the United States of America, it's certainly not God's chosen nation. There's only one nation in the history of man that was chosen by God, and that is Israel. But suppose, for the sake of argument, you knew that God was going to destroy North Korea. However, if you went and preached to the North Koreans, then God would spare the North Koreans. But at the same time, you know that there will come a time when those children of those people who repented will not repent, and they will absolutely decimate and crush the United States. Would you let them perish so you'd be done with the problem? Or would you go and preach to them? What precisely would you do? Well, Jonah knows precisely what he's going to do. He loves Israel. He puts two and two together. If Hosea's message is true, if Amos's message is true, and Isaiah's message is true, and he knows it is, if Nineveh is spared, then Israel will be crushed. But if they're judged, Israel will be saved. So that's Jonah in relationship to the Lord. That's mostly by way of review. Now we want to dig in a little bit further, verses 4 through 16, and we want to consider Jonah in relationship to the sailors. We just finished reading in verse 3 how he went to Joppa, found a ship, paid the fare, went down into it, fled from the presence of the Lord. So he resigns as a prophet. He just he decides he's going to become a tourist. He decides he wants to take a cruise on a Mediterranean ship. He will learn that while he wants to turn in his prophet's badge, you cannot resign as a prophet. And we'll look at that further next time. But the real issue is, 
God has given him a clear mission. His will is not fuzzy, it's specific, and he's rejecting it. And by the way, it's easy to discard Jonah's reasons for not doing what God has told him to do when we don't do what we should do. There's a great commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. It's a participle. It literally reads, as you go, make disciples. Now, we have kind of changed the meaning of that verse in the last 75 years. One popular campus group said, no, he's commanding us to do discipleship. Nothing could be further from the truth. As you go, as you go where, as you go everywhere you go, it's not a missionary verse, go to Africa, go to Korea, go to China. As you go, Christian, everywhere you go, you're to make converts. Put the five great commissions found in the New Testament together. It's crystal clear. The emphasis is make converts. How do you make converts? You've got to share the gospel. What do you do with these new converts? You baptize them in the name of the triune God. Then what do you do with them? Then you kick in discipleship, but there's no real true discipleship if you're not going to make disciples, and that's what's happening in America today. The average Christian in America no longer reaches out to lost people to try to win them to Christ, and we wonder why we're going down the tubes. The fewer true Christians the darker will get, and the more dismal life will be. Now, I want you to notice the cause-effect relationship between verses 3 and 4. The Lord, verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break off. So Jonah's fleeing, God's following, Jonah's running, God is chasing after Jonah. And while you can try to flee from the will of God, you cannot flee from the presence of God. Verse 4 is very clear. The Lord hurled a great wind, and the ship began to break up. It began to creak and crack, and some of those bowels were probably popping. Verse 3 says, Jonah rose up to flee. Verse 4 says, the Lord hurled a great wind. The Hebrew text literally reads, the Lord picked up a great wind and hurled it into the sea. What a contrast. Jonah has rejected God's will, but God comes after him. And we can come up with our little excuses, but God, if we really know him, will come after us. Now listen to me this morning as your pastor. God is a sovereign God. And he's a providential God. Not only does he rule the decrees of the world and the time frame of the world that we live in, but his providence extends to the details of your life. He doesn't even watch the sparrow fall to the ground without his notice. He sees everything that is about you. And so God, in response, because he cares about Jonah, is going after Jonah. He hurled a great wind. The word is used elsewhere in the Old Testament, for instance, of, of Saul, who, who took a javelin and hurled it at David because he didn't like the message. The point is, is that he is resisting God, but God is sourced in this storm. You know, we speak a lot about, you know, I heard the weatherman the other day, we'll talk Mother Weather, Mother Nature's going to give us a big blast here this weekend all the way up the coast. I don't know anything about Mother Nature, but I know a whole lot about Father God. Listen, Father God is the one who's over the circumstances of this world. And let me just say parenthetically, there is an increase of volcanoes, 
tsunamis. We had a, a volcano flash tsunami yesterday. Terrible, terrible event. Hurricanes, droughts, flooding. Now, these are not the birth pangs. People today say, well, these are the birth pangs Jesus spoke about. These are not the birth pangs. The birth pangs do not start. The scripture is clear. We studied it in the Revelation. We compared Revelation 6 with the Olivet Discourse. They don't begin until the church is removed. But there's an increase in these things because before you can have birth pangs, you have to have a pregnancy. And God is reminding us that this world is nearly full term, and one of these days the water is going to break, and then you'll see the birth pangs that will come in those steel trumpets in bold judgment. But the point is, is that God is over everything in this world, and if you are a child of God, He has a special affection and affinity towards you. If you are a born-again Christian and you are running in the opposite direction, or if you claim to be a born-again Christian and you are running in the opposite direction and God doesn't come after you, you've got your family fixed up. You're not really one of His. Listen to what the writer of the Hebrews says. He's quoting Proverbs 3. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. Have you ever had any painting spells? Well, these Hebrew Christians had, not in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm. And some Christians have feigning spells when it comes to walking with God, and they have forgotten God's discipline, that it's an expression of His goodness. Now, the writer of the Hebrews is going to remind them, and by application us, of three critical truths concerning heavenly discipline. And while we're here, let me just say that if you want to read a good biography of a man who needed some perspective, read the biography of Asaph. It's in Psalm 73. He nearly fainted. He nearly quit when he went through all these problems and he looked at all the pagans around him who seemed to be living high off the hog, and yet he was suffering. Let me read a few verses from that psalm. Asaph wrote verse 3, Psalm 73, For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. That means they're living big. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. And then God gives them an insight. It's recorded in the middle of the psalm. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until, until... I came into the sanctuary of God, and then I perceived their end. What he needed was perspective, and what we need is perspective concerning the discipline of God. Listen to the next verse that the writer of the Hebrews quotes. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now let me say parenthetically, there are many reasons why people suffer in this world. First of all, Christian and non-Christian alike suffer just because we live in a fallen world. When sin entered into the world, not only did man fall, but creation fell. It's all of creation groans and is in travail, looking for a new heaven and a new earth. And so, because of this world that we live in, there's common suffering. There's tornadoes. We've seen the tragic tornadoes in this past month. It's history and most people's minds, but it's still going on this morning. We've seen fires destroy entire neighborhoods. 
We saw a country hit yesterday by a tsunami. We saw a cyclone last week. We've seen earthquakes. We've seen on and on and on. It just doesn't seem to stop. And that's what we call common suffering. Christians and non-Christians alike. They get cancer. They have heart problems. They can be doing everything right, but they still have those problems. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's a good thing. Because God puts man on notice. Had God loved us in an idyllic kind of Garden of Eden, we might have concluded everything's just fine. But it's not. And so the thorns and thistles, the aches and pains, and everything else, it's an expression of God's grace to get us prepared. But beyond common suffering, there is what we might call Christian suffering. Peter speaks of those who will suffer as a Christian. Jesus spoke of those who suffered for righteousness' sake. In preparing us, he said this in John 15, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. Paul will write all his desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I hope you realize God has only one son without sin, but he has many sons, and none of which are without suffering. We will all suffer, either common suffering or sometimes Christian suffering. And if you decide to live godly, you might have your head taken off, as some believers did last week. Or, standing with our brothers in Canada today in solidarity, they're preaching in evangelical pulpits across Canada because it is now against the law to preach from a pulpit against transgenderism and homosexuality. And maybe before the end of this day, some of them will be arrested. We don't know. But you will suffer somehow. You may, as a college student, feel left out and very lonely. I've had college students come home and say, I feel very lonely. How so? Well, you know, like... Nobody wants to be with me because I don't do what they're doing. The 18 to 25 group in America is godless beyond imagination. Yes, you will feel lonely. All who desire to live godly for Christ Jesus are going to be persecuted. But not only is there common suffering, in Christian suffering there's carnal suffering, and that's what the writer of the Hebrews highlights here. Verse 7 of Hebrews 12, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? His premise is, is that it's the responsibility of parents to discipline their children. Obviously, he didn't live in the 21st century. In our day, when discipline is administered, typically, it's just one of two ends of the spectrum, either gross abuse or just total permissiveness. Now, I rise up and call my parents blessed because, humanly speaking, many of the assets I have come from their disciplinary process. And I think I can remember just about every spanking they ever gave me, and I can't ever remember saying, Dad and Mom, thank you so much for that fresh expression of your love. But then he quickly adds in verse 8, notice, but if you are without discipline, of which all, all true believers, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. There are many people today who profess 
the name of Christ. They dabble in the world. They disobey the Lord. They despise Bible study and prayer. The Lord's Day is anything but a priority to them. They seem to be living only for self. And they say, well, God never really disciplines me. Well, that's not something you should brag about. God says, if you're saved, if you are one of mine, you will meet me in discipline. And discipline in the New Testament, of course, comes in both the positive and negative realm. Sometimes it's a witchhead discipline. Sometimes you're doing everything right, but God wants to take you further. And so he orchestrates the circumstances. But if you can live in sin and God not chastise you, you have a sure sign that you are illegitimate and not a true son. Now please don't confuse the law of sowing and reaping with divine chastisement. Christian and non-Christian alike can experience the law of sowing and reaping. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he reap. But many times... The poison water we drink are from the wells that we've polluted. The sour fruit we eat are from the seeds that we've sown. And we're just suffering the consequences of decisions that we have made. That's not what the writer of the Hebrews is speaking about. And certainly that's not what we are reading here this morning in the prophet Jonah. Look again at chapter 1 and verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind on the seas, and there was a great storm on the seas. The ship was about to break off. Now this was a great storm. You know, it's one thing to have your boat in the water. It's quite another thing to have the water in your boat. There was a great storm, and the ship began to break off. It's creaking, it's popping. Furthermore, verse 5, we are told, Then the sailors became afraid. Every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. I mean, there's kind of a spontaneous prayer meeting here. As you know, there's no atheist in a foxhole. That the Hebrew text reads, Each and every one of the sailors shouted or cried out to their God in prayer. And of course, if you were a Phoenician sailor, you could have had any one of a multiplicity of gods. And many times they would even carry these idols onto the ship itself. And beyond that, notice, because, you know, everybody crowds to their God. Hopefully we'll hit the right one and he'll stop this thing. Beyond that, very practically, it says they threw the cargo, which was in the ship, into the sea to lighten it for them. In other words, they were throwing their prophets overboard. The very means to support their family is going into the drink. To put it another way, when you run from God, you not only hurt yourself, you hurt others. Because the saying is true, no man is an island unto himself. No one sins in isolation. Children are hurt when parents are not walking with God. Wives are hurt when their husbands are not walking with God. Husbands are hurt when their wives are not walking with God. And the church is hurt. When a member is not walking with God, which is why God calls elders in the local assembly to discipline church members. 1 Corinthians 5.5 5 tells us that you're to remove such a member. Now, he's not talking about perfection. We all sin in many ways, for we all stumble in many ways. Can you say amen? Well, that was pretty weak. I hope you're not self-righteous. So listen. He's not talking about perfection, but he's talking about testimony. He's talking about direction. And when a man or woman 
as walking in the opposite direction away from God, the elders have a responsibility. Why? Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump, and when left unchecked, it becomes like a cancer that metastasizes. Now, sometimes we point our fingers at the unbelieving world and we say, Yeah, they have a problem. They may be a problem. But understand the chief function of the church is to be salt and light. And Jesus said in the last of the last days that the church would be lukewarm. That men would lose their saltiness. And that's what's happening in America today. We can blame it on the government. And I'm up for, you know, fighting up in Columbia this session because there's a lot of moral issues that are coming down the pipe and most Christians don't have a clue as to what's happening. Yes, they want to make it against the law as it is already in 11 states to counsel people out of transgenderism slash homosexual relationship. The Dem platform wants to expand it naturally, make it against the law, and the way it's worded in their platform is it would make it against the law for me to tell someone who's homosexual, yes, it's sin, but yes, God can forgive you, and yes, God can deliver you. So look, I'm up for having my voice heard. I don't believe we should grease the skids to bring in the second coming of Christ. But in the same hand, that's not my hope. You give it another 10 years and this 18 to 30 year group is in power, America will not be the same. But you see, we are to be like salt and the function of salt is not just simply to enhance the flavor of a food, but it's a, primarily in the first century a preservative. And the power to change our country, the power to change our county, the power to change our, our, our city, not in the White House, it's in the church houses. The people of God live for God and speak up for what is right. And sadly, the reason so many Christians have so little influence is because they're like the world. And we bought into Rick Warren and Bill Hybels' methodology for doing church. Let's make it comfortable for the pagans. Let's dumb down the messages. Let's jettison expository preaching. And we'll fill our auditoriums, and indeed we did. And look at the disaster that is brought in the church. Now, I preached that 30 years ago, and I did. And those of you who have been with me that long know that. I received a lot of criticism, but now we have seen the fruit of it. It didn't take long. So very often we think, well, the problem is with the pagan world. Actually, most of the time, the problem is with us. Look, there'd be no storm if Jonah was in the will of God, but he wasn't. Now, do not miss here in verse 5 where Jonah is in all of this. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. I was reading the Septuagint this week. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's interesting, the word they use for sound of sleep is rendered snoring. <laughs> he was snoring and he was out of it. He had basically a do not disturb sign on his cabin and across his heart before the living God he wrote, do not disturb. You say, how is it that you could be sound asleep? I mean, how can you be so out of it when you're out of the will of God very easily? When you're out of God's will, you get depressed, you get despondent. 
when you're depressed and you're despondent, it brings exhaustion. Yes, you can sleep like a baby. It's like a burn. You become insensitive to pain. So these sailors are dying. They're ready to go under. And Jonah's sound asleep. I'm afraid that some people today are sound asleep in their carnality. Look at verse 6. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you're sleeping? He's pretty abrupt. He's ticked off. How can you sleep? Get up! Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Here's an unbeliever telling the Christian, so to speak, the believer to pray. I find it interesting that sometimes it's the unbelieving pagan who will remind us of the standards that are found in God's Word that we profess. Get up, call on your God. Ours certainly aren't concerned. Maybe you've got a God that will be concerned. Maybe your God will feel sorry for us. The words had to sting. Had to be like a bag of bricks hitting them in the face. I mean, God had called them to have concern and compassion on lost people. And here are these lost people are telling him he needs to have concern and compassion. Call on your God. He's turned in his prophet's badge. But he's being rebuked by non-unbelieving men. So he's in the middle of this storm. The sea is raging. He should have been a Nineveh by now, but he's not. He is sound asleep in his sin. These guys are, are praying fervently as best they know how to pray as pagans. By the way, it's interesting because the word here for sailor um, is used in other places in the Old Testament as a play on words. The word for sailor is a play on word for the word salt. And so to this day, we speak of some seasoned men as an old salt. We've had a few men over the years who've worked on the ocean, and they've told me, I've asked them, what's it like? You ever been caught in a bad storm? Oh, yeah, let me tell you what it's like. It can happen. And so, look, they want every God covered, no God left behind. Call on your God! But can he? No, not really. Not with any effectiveness. Why? Because his heart's out of fellowship. Remember what the psalmist said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If I regard iniquity, not if I sin, but if I cling to sin. If I regard sin, if I hold on to sin. We've done verses like this in Isaiah 66 where God doesn't hear on the pagan. It has nothing to do with the pagan. It has everything to do with the believer. When we hold on to sin, we say, well, God always answers prayer. He says, yes, no, or maybe, no, that's not true. Sometimes he doesn't even listen. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord does not hear. He directed this barrier between himself and God, but now he's awake. The first time he's up on deck, the ship is rocking and reeling. He can feel the wind blowing. He hears it creaking. There's mortal danger here, and in a flash of time, he puts two and two together. And he knows that this is the hand of God himself. And I hope you realize that wherever you go, God goes behind you and in front of you. You can't flee God. And Jonah is the only man who knows the true and living God. But at this moment, again, he's not on speaking terms. He comes up on deck. The sailor is, sailors are pleading with him. 
Interestingly, the again the, the Hebrew word for sailor is an old storm. They 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 know this is no ordinary storm. This is something that is out of heaven. Something's happened and it's real big and it's like nothing we've seen before. Verse seven. Each man said to his mate, "Come, let us cast lots. This prayer thing's not working, so let's go to Plan B." Each man said to his mate, "Come, let us cast lots, so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us." So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So knowing that this prayer strategy is not working, they draw lots. Now remember, this is a Phoenician ship; it's going from Joppa to Tarshish. So based on the historical records we have from a number of ancient Greek historians, it's a ship of at least 25 men. So for the sake of argument, you've got some containers. Usually you'd have 25 pebbles in it. One would have a mark on it. And you would see who would get the marked stone. And by a stroke of luck, it falls to Jonah. Well, not really. We don't believe in luck, do we? I hope you don't ever say, I got lucky because that's a dishonor to God for you to describe His work in those terms because His providence extends to every detail and He works everything together for good. But again, God worked at this time in human history through loss. Proverbs says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. One commentator paraphrased this verse and he said, Man throws the dice, but it is God who makes the spots come off. Now, of course, after Pentecost, no one draws lots. Why? Because now we have one, not just the Word of God, but we have the Spirit of God. But the lot is singled out on Jonah. And so what do they do? They nail him with five questions. Did you notice verse 8? They said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? And where did you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? So just picture this. The wind is whipping. The ship is rolling up and down. The waves and the rain is biting. They draw straws, so to speak. It falls to Jonah. First question, what have you done to bring that? What's your occupation? Where are you from? What's your nationality? The answer is, he says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Translator, I am a believer in the one true God. It's brilliant what he's doing. He is appealing to general revelation. Because he knows that this man knows that there's just one God. Every sailor on board knows it. You see, it's a suppression of what you know to be true to go from being monotheist to being polytheistic. Every man by nature is monotheistic, the Bible teaches. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. And so we did remove someone from the radio station recently. Why? Because they said a person could be a Hindu or a Buddhist and just not have believed in Jesus, but if they responded to the life they have, they could still go to heaven. Actually, the Bible teaches just the opposite. You have enough light to condemn you before a holy God. All men know there is a God. I can see him in creation. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature are clearly seen through what he has made, and still evolution denies that. 
We suppress the truth of God. We don't acknowledge Him as Creator. We don't give Him thanks. So God gave us over to sensuality. Romans 1, God then gave us over to homosexuality. Then God gave us over to a depraved, upside-down mind, where we call good evil and evil good. And so now the preacher is the sinner for telling people the truth. That's a suppression of truth. But listen, if you respond to the light you have, God will give you more light. And He will ultimately give you the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you reject that gospel, listen, God does what He preaches. Sometimes Jesus said you don't cast your pearl before swine. You withhold gospel truth because a man will just stomp over it and make fun of it. And sometimes God doesn't give a person any more life because they won't respond to the life they already have. But listen, there's salvation in no one else. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Someone will never see the inside of heaven, Jesus said, unless you are born again. I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of heaven and on earth. And listen, if you're running from God, you'll be asleep spiritually as well, just as he was a few short moments earlier physically. You say, Pastor, well, I, I think I'm awake. I, I talk about Jesus. I have a walk for Jesus. Look, you can talk in your sleep and you can walk in your sleep. Oh, I'm passionate about Jesus. Sometimes I even cry in church over him. Look, people cry in their sleep. Well, I think a whole lot about Jesus. You can think about Jesus in your sleep. It's called dreaming. You say, well, how can I really know if I'm awake or asleep? It's very simple. If you are awake, you will see people the way God sees people. For the Son of Man has come to save and to seek that which is lost. You will see people headed toward the real destiny, either in heaven forever and ever or in hell forever and ever. And that will drive the way you live and the things that you will speak about. So here's Jonah. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, but nothing could be further from the truth, at least at this moment. Now, he's not trying to discredit God, yet at the same time, he is fleeing from God. He has just affirmed the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. That's the God I worship. And when he says that, notice, the men became extremely... Right. By the way, we just have a summary here in verse 10 of all that he said, and I'll show you that in a moment. I think most of you have picked it up already. These men, literally it says, feared with a great fear. And so they ask, how can you do this? How could you do this, children? You're the preacher. You say you worship God who made the sea that we're in. You worship God who made the land where we wish we're in. And you're bringing this on us. And that's what pagans often do. They have a way of pointing out our faults. You lose your cork at the office and they say, Hey, Christian deacon, you're not supposed to act that way, are you? God will sometimes rebuke us, even through lost people. For the men know he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told him told them. That tells us the whole story is in here. He rehearsed with them what he had gone through and what he was doing. Initially, they thought he was in trouble because of something he had done, but he was actually in trouble because of something he was not doing. He should have been going to Nineveh, but he was going in the opposite direction. So, verse 11, 
they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. God was turning up the heat, and that's what he'll do at the end of time. He'll turn things up in the physical realm, in the natural realm. Things will get more and more progressively worse, and then again the water will break and the birth pangs will come during the Great Tribulation period. The court sees statements here in verse 10 that these sailors make tell us again they had missed the motive. They didn't understand that he was in, they were in the mess they were, not because he had done something wrong, but because he wasn't doing something right. He said to them, notice verse 12, pick me up, throw me into the sea, then this sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. It reveals this determination not to do the will of God, but to disobey God's will. Throw me into the sea, it's all my fault. He's confessing it. Tell us what to do, Jonah. We'll do anything you want us to do. Throw me in. You know what he could have said? He could have said, Look, you guys repent of your false gods. And I'll repent of my disobedience. You turn this ship around, bring me back to Tel Aviv, and everything will be different. But not Jonah. He's stubbornly rebellious. He might have said, he could have bluffed his way out of it. I appreciate he didn't do that. Give me an order. I don't know why we're in this mess. Let me help you roll. But at least he's honest. Now, people have sometimes asked me on the Bible line over the years, why didn't Jonah just jump in? Because that would have been suicide. And he's not in favor of suicide. In chapter 4 and verse 3, when he is griping the God as the pouting prophet that God had converted and brought the greatest revival in the history of the world, and he's pouting under that, that, that tree, he says, well, I can't take it, Lord, just, just kill me. Why doesn't he use his own hands? Because he's not a favor of suicide. So he felt content. God is sovereign. If they want to throw me overboard, I'll take this as God's disciplinary hand on my life. You know, sometimes when people get carnal, they get stubborn many times over the decades. I've had a couple in my office, and I'm just trying to convince sometimes one, sometimes both. Would you at least say, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? They won't do it. And I can't help them. And they can go pay somebody a hundred bucks for a thirty-minute session. They can't help them either. We're going to own our problem. Jonah's not like the prodigal father. I've sinned against you and against heaven. Forgive me. No, not at all. Throw me into the drink. Can a Christian become that hardened? Yes. I wish I could say no. But there's biblical examples, even in the New Testament. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 30? For this reason. For what reason? Because some of the Corinthians were living immoralized. Some even got drunk. For this reason. 
as they continued on this path of sin without repenting, and God was turning up the rear staff. Many among you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you sleep, some of you are dead. So yes, a Christian can become so hard and obstinate towards God that they can literally self-destruct. And this happens when we ignore the plain instruction of God. You know, at the Lord's table, I often admonish people as I admonish myself to pray what David prayed in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, you might expect them just to pick them up and throw them overboard, but that's not what happens. Look at verse 13. However, the men rode desperately. The Hebrews, as they dug in, the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stronger against them. So here we find these guys giving their best, throwing their guts out. They dug deeper into the sea, the text reads, but notice there's a progression here. It goes from bad to worse. In verse 4, we read of a great wind and a great storm. Then look at verse 11. We're told the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And now in verse 13, God turns the wrist that up another notch as the sea was becoming even stormier. They row harder, and Jonah is saying, row, row, row your boat. And God was saying, you ain't going nowhere. I hope you see the irony in this, and that while Jonah would not lift a finger to save the lives of these pagans, these idol-worshipping pagans are doing everything in their power to save Jonah. Can you imagine how convicted this prodigal prophet must have felt, knowing how hard they struggled to deliver this man? But their rowings is no use. We read in verse 14, then they called on the Lord Yahweh, notice all caps, in the name of God. They called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord. And I love the New American Standard. It retains the vocative. Most of the new translations do not. O Lord, because it describes in the Hebrew text, depth of soul. O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. And do not put, do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O oh Lord, have done this as you please. Do you notice what they've done? They've turned away from the multiplicity of these gods because Jonah had been preaching to them. He recounted the whole thing, and they acknowledging what they originally knew true to be in their heart, that there's just one God. Yes, you, O oh Lord, have done as you have pleased. We can't win. Now, God does not want you to ask him for permission. He doesn't ask, you don't ask God for, excuse me, God doesn't ask you for permission. God is a sovereign God. God is going to do as he pleases. You see, the problem is, is we don't fear God. Under the love of God, we don't really fear God. Well, there's a sense in which there's no fear in love, in the sense that if you've received Christ, the Lord God has been propitiated. All of the wrath for yours and my sin has been poured out in a holy substitute, the Lord Jesus. But there's still a sense which the Bible commands believers to fear God. It's the beginning of wisdom. And one of the characteristics of a nation that is being given over is there's no fear of God before their eyes. 
our president and vice president, Speaker of the House, and a number of Republicans and Democrats, when they hailed this wickedness as a lifestyle that should be accepted, the murder of babies and clinics and the, the perversion of a lifestyle, we say, oh, this is a good thing. No fear of God before their eyes. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. He's so stubborn, he's so rebellious. Take me, throw me overboard, no resistance. And he said, oh, God, he's going to stop, don't do this. i got to repent, I'm going to get right right now. Throw me over. Then the men fear the Lord greatly. And they offered his sacrifice. Then when? Then because of another miracle that took place. Please note, it does not say the storm stopped. The text says the sea stopped, and there's a big difference. Normally when the storm stops, the sea is still agitated. But this is similar to the miracle Jesus did on Galilee. It all stopped. When God does a miracle, he does it for And so these men feared the Lord greatly. And notice they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. Now in verse 16, they did three things. They feared the Lord, number one. They offered a sacrifice, number two. And three, they made vows. There's just a sense of total awe on Lord. Again, there's a progression here in the lives of these men. This is the third time it says they feared God. First, in verse uh, 5, the text says, the storm. They feared God over the storm. The second time, they feared God when they heard he was a Hebrew and he worshipped Yahweh. And no doubt they had heard about Yahweh. People had for centuries. Remember, it was Yahweh, the Lord, who brought them out of Egypt with ten mighty plagues representing these pagan gods that they worship. He split the dead Red Sea in half. He allowed them to cross over the Jordan. That was the living God who did that. And of course they had heard about him. Everyone had heard of him. And now on the third occasion it says they feared the Lord. And so what did they do? Well, the text says they offered a sacrifice, they worshipped, and they knew the Jews had a prescribed system because God has established it with Abel without the shedding of blood. There's no forgiveness. Actually, he established it through his parents before that. That's how Abel knew, because when they sinned and they covered themselves with pig leaves, works, religion, God killed the first animals in all of human history. Certainly many pagan religions have tried to copy the Hebrews and their means and methodology and rationale behind their pagan animal sacrifices compared nothing to what God reveals in the Holy Writ of Scripture. And they made vows. They don't make a vow before it happens. You know, Lord, if you get us out of this storm, we promise we'll do whatever you want. That's foxhole conversion. Two men are in a foxhole. The enemy is coming. There's seemingly no hope. Lord, I promise you I'll serve you the rest of my life if you'll get me out of this. And God does, and he turns his back. Oh, and that's us. We need to go out and celebrate and get drunk and find some women tonight. That's foxhole conversion. 
No, these men, after the storm is over, after the deliverance, worship and fear the living God. Now, just quickly, let's consider finally Jonah in relationship to the fish. I'll just touch on it this week and we'll plunge into it deeper next time. Jonah in relationship to the fish. We read now in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, I like the way the NASB renders it appointed. Um, the Net Bible says he sent a fish. The Old English says he prepared a fish. But I do not think the issue here is that God literally created a fish on the spot. And that certainly was not the intention of the 17th century English pens and uh, translation, much less their commentators. God appointed a fish. Now, could have God just instantly created a fish? Could have. God can do anything he wants. But the Hebrew word means he appointed a fish. God knows everything about us. He knew where Jonah was headed. He knew what these pagan sailors were going to do. He knew he was getting, they were going to throw overboard. God's already got his submarine in locale, ready to pick up his servant. Now, again, we'll delve into it deeper next time. People often ask, well, is there a fish large enough to do this? Well, certainly there are. There's the sperm whale, which uh, has been spotted certainly in the Mediterranean waters. And there's also the blue whale. Now, the blue whale has a huge mouth. They say a whole football team could fit in it, but it's, the aperture of the throat is so small it can barely swallow an orange, only a herring. Whereas the sperm whale also has a huge mouth, but it has a throat that will expand up to eight feet. They have found full octopuses, uh, octopi, I guess, plural of octopus, right? octopi inside of, a, of these sperm whales. Now, I don't know uh, Jonah's exact dimensions, but I think he would have fit. In either case, that's where he needed to go. That's where the air was. Second, could a man survive and stay alive in one of these creatures? Well, the temperature is hot. They say it's 104 to 106 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, you could survive in that. A lot of humidity. But not for long. Because of the digestive juices. Again, we'll look at this further next time. Through some men, historical records of men have been followed. The miracle was not that a fish could swallow Jonah, but that he could survive three days and three nights and come out alive and unharmed. You say, Pastor Carl, do you really believe that? I believe with all my heart. I believe that if God prepared Jonah to swallow a great fish, he could have done that. God can do anything he wants to do. You say, well, is there a fish big enough for a man to survive without him being digested? Again, you missed the whole point in those questions. The question is not, is there a big enough fish, or could these circumstances unfold? The question is, how big is your God? Again, Elohim in the beginning created God. It's the heavens and the earth. He put it in the opening verse, and that's why Satan, more than anything else for the last hundred years, has attacked creationism. You say, does it bother you that you can't totally figure it out? Not at all. 
it would bother me more if I, as a finite man, could fully explain the infinite God. So how are we going to apply this? Let me suggest several applications as we close. Number one, God's grace, because there's some timeless lessons about the grace of God here. God's grace is seen in that while Jonah is disobedient, he still uses Jonah for his glory. While he's disobedient, he still uses Jonah for his glory. I mean, whoever would have thought that the conversion of these pagan sailors was possible? Sadly, it's the revival on the boat and the revival in the city that is overlooked. But in spite of Jonah, in spite of the messenger, he still explains all that God did, and they repent and they believe in the one true God. Now, I am deeply disturbed over what has happened in evangelical Christianity in the last 40 years. The church in America has become more and more hero worshippers. And it's the same problem that the Apostle Paul covered in 1 Corinthians 3. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Paul is asking, who are these people? Just messenger boys. And periodically, we see one of God's servants fall. Servants that God was using to bring people into the kingdom. And it is a fresh reminder, as we've seen illustrated through the life of Jonah, that the message supersedes even the messenger. That God used Jonah in spite of Jonah, but it is wonderful when God uses a servant because of that servant, because they are yielded to the Spirit of God. So we saw the Jimmy Swaggers and the Jim Bakers and all the people in the last five years fallen who've rejected the faith, too many to name, in evangelical churches. And yet people came to Christ. Why? Because the message is alive. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. Can you imagine these guys? Jonah meets them and says, Hey, man, how'd you get here? You're one of those Phoenicians. How'd you get here? You don't remember me, Jonah? I was on your boat. It's just like we told you. God does as he pleases. Secondly, God's grace is seen in that while Jonah is discarded by these sailors, he's not discarded by God. While he's discarded by the sailors, he's not discarded by God. I mean, God had a fish already and prepared to move in to rescue him. And some of us, if we were playing God, we wouldn't have done it this way. We would have sent a great white shark. I mean, oh, I'm doing it, I don't want to obey the golden rule, but at least leave some teeth marks on the guy, you know. This is a reminder. But this is God's testimony. His unfailing love, His mercy. And the good news is that God's grace does not fail. That while Jonah has forgotten God, God has not forgotten Jonah. Jonah had given up on doing the will of God, but God had not given up on him, and He hasn't given up on you. And some of you may be here and you say, I've blown it. I had a brother call me this week, not a little brother, but a brother in Christ. I've blown it. Can God ever use me again? God loves to move in to the heart of a prodigal. 
and show his friends. No doubt when he is thrown overboard and he's beginning to sink down into the water, he thinks I'm history. This is that. But God came after him with everything he had. See, as you read through this chapter, God has no problem with the storm, he's over it. God has no problem with the pagan sailors, he's over them. God has no problem with the great fish. He commissions him spot on to pick him up. The only problem he has is with his reluctant servant, Jonah. Jonah was out of the will of God. He had lost his concern for the things of God, but God had not lost his concern for his prophet. And if you are a true child of God and you run from the Lord, he will pursue you in his discipline. He will chase you. And you will feel his hot breath on your neck because he wants to restore you. Our Father, we thank you this morning for the realism, for the honesty and the practicality of your word. A lamp under our feet and a light to our path. And I know that there are saints who are listening to me here on one of our campuses and thousands every week who live stream or download the messages. And some who are right where Jonah is described as. Thank you that, like the prodigal, when we will own our sin, we confess it before you that you are faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So help someone today to be restored in your grace. Thank you that when we ponder your grace, when we think of the fact that even as believers we can rebel, but you still love us with an unfailing love, how that instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and the one of the holy and righteous son in this present age. But we know the promise of restoration is only given to those who have first received Jesus as Lord. So help someone today who is trying to find meaning in life through rebellious sin. Help someone today who is self-righteous and they think they're good enough to save themselves. Help them to come to Jesus who died in their place on their behalf and was raised from the dead, declaring to all men everywhere that they must repent because you have fixed the day in which you will judge the world through him. Thank you that you are in control of this world. Thank you that you are in control of the governments of Canada and across this world. And we pray for our brother pastors there that the things that they know this week we may still know in America. The things that we thought at one time would never be normalized are now a way of life. So help us that no matter what happens, to rely on your providence, to rely on your sovereignty. You warned us that these days would come upon those who live at the end of the age. And you told us that at the end of the age you would gather the Jews and put them in the land. Yet so many are asleep. Help us to be spiritually alert and to live fully for you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.